This morning's scripture is from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Emma. Well, the uh, season of Eastertide is the, it's the 50 days between Easter and Pentecost, and it's the, it's the chunk of the Christian calendar where uh, it's common for the church to focus on uh, what does it look like to live the Christian life? What does it look like to, to walk in the newness of life that is offered through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus? And what is marked by this, this life that Jesus offers us is love. And so what we're going to do for a few weeks is, is meditate on and give ourselves over to this task of thinking through what does it look like for us to learn how to love. And there's probably no better place for us to do that than to, than to go to the Bible's magnum opus on love, which is right here in 1 Corinthians 13. This is, uh, you know, a very famous, very popular passage. My guess is even if you're not a Christian, even if you're not familiar with the Bible at all, these words are at least familiar to you. You've heard these words before. They're often read at weddings. Uh, these words were read at Jim and Pam's wedding on the office. Um, these words are uh, referred to in an Avett Brothers song in the Ballad of Love and Hate. Uh, I'm sure you've seen these words uh, on some sort of cross-stitch somewhere or on a cheesy internet meme floating around on the, on the cyberwebs of uh, these words and really horrible font up against a backdrop of like clouds or a sunset or something. And uh, there, are, there are authors that have written entire books just on this one chapter alone. So these words are, these are extremely famous, extremely popular, extremely uh, beautiful words, but, but it's fascinating. The, the words um, in their original context uh, were written as an indictment. These words brought, were written by Paul to a church to confront them. And if you read through the whole um, letter of 1 Corinthians. Paul is, is writing to this church that's in this city of Corinth, and Corinth is this uh, important, influential city. 
And there's this church that's right there in the middle of it, and this church is this important, influential church, and it's full of people that are extremely gifted and extremely smart, and yet for all of their gifts and for all of their intelligence, uh, this church was a mess. If you read through this letter, Paul is confronting them and dealing with issue after issue after issue. So here's just a, a sampling. This church was incredibly clicky. They had all these different tribes that they were divided against each other because they aligned themselves with different preachers and different kind of celebrity pastors that they said they were with this person or they were with this person. Uh, this church was, was just out of control sexually. Uh, this church was fighting each other all the time. They were suing each other. They were literally involved in lawsuits. Uh, and then when they celebrated the Lord's Supper, the, the rich would come forward and leave the, those who were, uh, had lower income or were poor or behind, and they would gorge themselves and get drunk at church on the Lord's Supper while those who were poor just watched, and then they would leave them with the scraps or leftovers when they left. And so it was just it was the whole, the church was a train wreck. And so this, this, this poem that you get in 1 Corinthians 13, this, this whole, in many ways, the, the letter is crescendoing up to this moment. And so in and of itself, it's not just this sweet, syrupy poem about love. This is a come-to-Jesus meeting. This is Jesus telling this church, hey, the one thing that you lack and the one thing that you desperately need is love. And so he writes these words and uh, challenges them. And just to be clear, he's not saying what you need is you need for other people to love you. What you need is you need to learn how to love other people. He's saying uh, this is the core central point of it all. Your gifts, your influence, your, your, uh, your intelligence, you've missed the whole point if you've missed love. So we're going to park ourselves in this passage for a few weeks and just consider these things together. And I think one of the reasons why it's important for us to do that is because if you were to diagnose the modern church in America, I think um, we, we have a similar problem, is that we lack love. In fact, if you're somebody who's outside of the church looking in on the church, uh, you, you might agree with Paul. People outside of the church, they see our hatred, they see our division, they see our smugness, our judgmentalism, our uh, hypocrisy. They see, the, they see the ways that the church leads with what we're opposed to and what we're against and what we disagree with. And they, 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 see, um, uh, they see the way that we uh, are committed to our own power and our own privilege and so the critique from out, those outside the church, you know, they see us and they think, man, what y'all are doing is a million miles away from what love is. And so because of Paul's critique, because of the, the world's critique, because of our own self-critique, it's, it's worth us uh, spending some time learning how to love. I mean, it was Mahatma Gandhi who once famously said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. So we're going to look at this passage, and really for this morning, I only want to look at the first three verses. Uh, we're going to crawl our way through this passage, but today we'll just start with the first three verses, and I want to show you three things of why, uh, of the reality of love being so central. First, I want to show you that love is central. Secondly, why love is central. 
And then thirdly, how we can become people who, where love is central to us. So that it's central, why it's central, and how we can become people to where love is central to us. Make sense? First, that love is central. Let's just look. Look at verse 1. Paul writes, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, the Corinthian church valued, put a high premium on spiritual gifts, particularly the gift of speaking in tongues. And so Paul says, okay, let's take that thing that you really value and let's crank it up to the ninth degree, to the nth degree. Let's say you could speak in the tongues of angels. Let's say that you could be fluent in angel. How impressive and amazing and awesome would that be? But let's say you can do that, but you lack love well, then you're just white noise. It's just worthless. And then he keeps going. Look at verse 2. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. He says, okay, cool. Y'all really like knowledge. Let's say you had all knowledge. Let's say you could understand every mystery in the world. You possessed all the data that there is. You could quote any author, any podcast, any article. You could just destroy anybody in any debate. All knowledge, but you don't have love. Doesn't matter then. You are nothing. Zero. And then he says, okay, let's say you have faith, and your faith is so strong that it can actually move mountains but you don't have love, nothing, worthless. And then he keeps going. One more verse, look at verse three, same idea. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. He says, think about the most extreme form of sacrificial service, giving away everything that you own, even giving up your very body to be burned. How noble would that be to die a martyr's death? It cannot get more over the top than that. And Paul is saying, but if you do that, but you don't do it driven by love, then it's a waste. You've gained nothing. I mean, do you see how disturbing this is? I mean, to put this in um, modern context, here's what he's saying. He's saying, I don't care how passionate you are about justice, how sensitive you are to the needs of marginalized people, how many followers you have online, how much influence you have, how missional you are, how culturally savvy you are, how theologically astute you are, how well-read you are, how civic-minded you are, how involved in the city you are. If you have not love, you have nothing. Now, it's fascinating, in case you didn't you know, catch it. He doesn't say, if you lack love, you have some gaps, meaning you're you're 80% there, but if you can tack on a little love, then you'd be Gucci. He doesn't say that. He says, if you lack love, you are nothing. You got zero. It's It's all a waste. And you hear that, you think, okay, wow, Paul is being dramatic. Um, Paul's not being dramatic. This is the main emphasis. This is the thesis of the entire Bible. Let me give you a couple examples. Matthew 22, 
Jesus says, you can summarize the entire Old Testament law and the prophets down to one command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength, and love, the, and love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, he's saying you can boil the entire Hebrew scriptures down to a single word, love. This is the intent behind everything that God is asking you and me to do, to love. Paul says this in Galatians 5, uh, verse 6, that the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. James says in 2.17 that a faith that does not manifest itself in love is dead. John writes in 1 John 4.7 that love for others is how you know that you have come to know God. So you got Paul, Jesus, James, John, the, the whole Bible is making this point. This is what life is about. This is why you're breathing right now. This is why human beings exist to love, to love God and to love our neighbors. Now, for us in the church, it's really easy for us to get confused on this, and we confuse means and ends. We confuse the point of something and then the way that you go about getting to that point. So, for example, um, the point of Christianity is not to read your Bible. Some people think, well, that's the reason you become a Christian and then you read the Bible. That's not the ends. That's a means. We read the Bible as a means so that as we do so, the Spirit might form us into become people who learn how to love. Uh, we gather together as a church as a, as a, to worship together as a people this is not the point of Christianity. The point of Christianity is not, not to come to a meeting. We gather so that the Spirit might form us into people that learn how to love. In fact, here's what Jonathan Edwards wrote. I put this in your, at the beginning of your bulletin. He said, the labor of love is the main business of the Christian life. So when you think about your life, whether you're a Christian or not, you can still answer this question. What is what is your main business? What is your top priority? What is the, the thing that you are aiming at? You know, when, when a new year rolls around and, and we all write our New Year's resolutions, does love even show up on the list? You know, you say, okay, I want to uh, lose some weight, I want to read more, and I want, to, I want to grow in being excellent at loving other people. You know, when you're setting personal goals or, or goals within your workplace, professional goals, does the word love even show up somewhere? And yet Paul is saying this is to be our main goal. This is to be the top goal, the top priority, the main thing that we are aiming at, love. Now, you hear that, you might think, well, that's, that's lovely. I think that's great that Christianity is all about love. I like love. I love love. It's cool that y'all are into that. Uh, but Why? Why, why is this a thing? It's not like this is an idea that's just plucked out of thin air. There's actually a deeply theological reason for why love is so central. And I want to explore that with you in the second big idea, why love is central. And, and this, is, this may feel a little dense. This may feel cerebral, so bear with me. We'll push through. We'll get on the other side. But, but think about this. How does the Bible begin? It begins with these words, in the beginning God, which means before God created anything, Human beings, giraffes, planets, mitochondria, whatever. Uh, 
there was God. God has eternally been. He's always been. And if you've ever wondered this, okay, if that's true, if God is eternal, what was God doing before he created anything? Is he just floating around, wandering around in nothingness? Like, what was he doing? Bored for eternity? Uh, the Bible gives you a little window into what God was doing from all eternity past. In John chapter 17, verse 24, Jesus is praying, and he says this, Father, you loved me before the creation of the world, which tells you that before God was creating anything, God was a father loving his son. That is who God is. And the rest of the Bible kind of fills out some of this mystery that even though the Bible is adamant that there is one God, this one God exists within himself as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's a trinity, which means from all eternity, God has been enjoying perfect love and fellowship and community within himself. The Father has always been delighting in and loving the Son and the Spirit, and the Son has always been delighting and delighting in and loving the Father and the Spirit, and the Spirit has always been delighting in and loving the Father and the Son. And here's why this is important. Here's why this matters. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, said that in order for love to be a thing, love has to have an object. Love is only something that, that one person can do for another. So if there was no other persons within God, if God was unipersonal, that means that God only started to love whenever he created the first thing, the first angel, the first human being, the first whatever. He only started to love when he created something to love which means that love is secondary to his nature. But that's, the Bible says that's not true. The Bible says that God is love. It is, it is fundamental for what it means for God to be God. He is one who loves and has always loved. And you think, okay, why, where are we? What, is this, what does this matter? Here's why this matters. Because you are made in the image of this God. In many ways, you resemble him, you are like him, which means what it means to be a human being is to be one who loves. You and I are unavoidably lovers. That's why it does not matter if you are religious or not. It doesn't matter if you believe in God or not. Every human being on the planet longs to give love and to receive love. That's, it, it is what it, it's baked into what it means to be a person. Because we're made in the image of a God who is love. Now, this reminds me of the um, movie Free Guy. I don't know if you've seen Free Guy. It's fun. Ryan Reynolds, it's, it's, it's interesting. He plays, uh, he plays a character named Guy within this video game. He, he's, he's what's called an NPC, a non-player character. If you've ever seen you know, Grand Theft Auto or any of these games where you enter into a world and there's... You know, there's computer-generated bots that are just kind of walking around and doing their thing, and he plays one of those people. And the game goes from inside the world, inside this computer world, to the real life. And in the outside world, in the real world, you have this woman named Millie who plays the game, and she enters into the game as this avatar named Molotov Girl. And Molotov Girl, within the world of this video game, meets and starts this conversation with this guy, Guy, with Ryan Reynolds. And over the course of the movie, Ryan Reynolds starts to fall in love with her. 
And this confuses everybody within the game and outside the game because they're like, okay, this is, a, this, is a, this is just a program. It's just this crazy, weird AI situation where this thing that's not a real thing is learning how to love. And I'm not going to spoil it for you, but as the movie unfolds, at one point in the movie, you begin to you discover that the person who designed the game, as he says it, he says that he wrote love into the code. You have a designer who wrote love into the very code of that universe, and it's the same way with you and me. Our designer has written love into the code of what it means to be a human being. It's baked into your DNA, as it were. So when you and I fail to love, or when we don't love, it's not just that we're being bad. It's, it, it means that we're cutting against the grain of what it means to be a person. We're dehumanizing ourselves. And, and the indictment of this chapter, and really the indictment of the rest of the Bible, is that you and I constantly, consistently fail to love. Which raises this million-dollar question then, well, then how can we become people who do love? If it is our design to love, and yet our design is so damaged or so broken that we don't love or we can't love, then how can we? Well, that's the last question. And if you hear this passage, and if you hear a sermon like this and you want to take it seriously, you might be tempted to say, okay, love's a big deal. I'm not good at it. I... Um, I'm really going to double down on my efforts here. I'm going to double down on trying to learn how to love more. I'm going to take this seriously. And you're making, you know, you're making, you're heading towards your own willpower, which is a natural impulse. Uh, but if you do that, you would be wrong. You'd be foolish. Because the, the, the way that you become people who love, is, it's counterintuitive. It's not first to make a beeline towards your own willpower. The first step is to come to terms with the uncomfortable fact that you and I don't love. We lack it. We fail at it. You know, as, as I have been studying this passage and just kind of sitting in 1 Corinthians 13 for a few weeks, I've had this thought where it's like, I don't even think I know what love is. I'm not sure if I've ever loved anybody in my life. And so let that hard reality devastate you. And if you're anything like me, you want to resist that. You want to bow up against that and defend yourself and justify yourself and point to all of these examples and relationships in your life where you're like, no, 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 I'm, pretty, I'm, I'm not terrible at loving. I'm good at it. I mean, I have the basic idea of how it's supposed to work. I'm not, you know, perfect. As long as you resist this idea, your love will always be driven by pride. It will always be driven by an emptiness, a, a sense of trying to justify yourself. The hard, uncomfortable first step is to let this devastate you. To actually be honest about the fact that you care more about money. You care more about your looks. You care more about your reputation, your safety, your accomplishments, then you do what it means on what it means to be a human being. And like I said, if you're anything like me, we don't want to swallow that pill. But if you will let this devastate you, and, and from that place of humility and desperation, then you make a beeline to the arms of Jesus. 
Because what Jesus does, the, 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 the reason why the gospel is good news is because it looks at people like you and me who, who, who don't love and who lack love. And in many ways, we feel unlovable, and yet the gospel tells us, and yet you are loved. He loves you still. He's willing to still embrace you and still embrace me despite all of my failures and despite all of your failures. And in fact, this love, though, is, it's not sentimental. It's not, it's not a Hallmark card kind of love. L- listen to what Romans 5 says. It says, God shows, us his, shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is a love that is costly, not mushy, that Jesus was willing to give up everything he had, like verse 3 says. He's willing to give up his own body to be burned, as it were. He's willing to liquidate all of his assets, step in front of the bullet and take it for you and for me. Out of love for us, he gives himself away. That is the only thing. When you know that you are loved like that, that is the only thing that will awaken real love in you. Your willpower will not do it. Your willpower will only produce a love that is corrupt. Only love awakens love. To know that when you were unlovable, he loved you still. And he didn't love us because we were lovely. He loves us because he loves us. In fact, the best way that I know how to illustrate this is um, to think about the movie, the story, Beauty and the Beast. I mean, the reason why it's a tale as old as time is because it's the gospel. Here you have this hideous beast who is imprisoned and in isolation because of this dark spell that was put on him. And this, you know, beauty enters into his life, this pure beauty. And, this, and beauty does the most irrational thing ever. She starts to love him. And you're thinking, this doesn't make any sense. He's hideous. He doesn't deserve this. This is weird. But her love for him is so unimaginable, and it's so pure, and it's so good. It breaks the spell. And and he becomes his true self. The beast is shed, and who he truly is comes forth, which happens to be this handsome prince. And the same reality is for you and for me, that here we are imprisoned and under the dark spell of our own sin, and we can't love, and our love is corrupt, and it's half-hearted, and we fail, and we lack it, and yet here comes the beauty of Jesus with his love and with his grace and with his kindness, and he loves us in a way that is unimaginable and unfathomable, and he just loves and loves and loves, and it breaks the spell. And we become our true selves the people that we were actually created to be. We're free. The the beast is gone. The old self is gone. And we become our new selves, our true selves. In other words, the gospel is the only thing that frees you to be the kind of person that you were created to be and designed to be, which is someone who loves. When you have tasted the bitterness of your own failures, that is what humbles you. That's what makes you down to earth. That's what makes you dependent on God. And when you have tasted the sweetness of his grace and of his love for you, that's what gives you joy. That's what gives you compassion. That's what, that's what pulls you outside of yourself to be others-oriented. Put those together. That's what it means to be a human being. Now, I'll end with one more uh, quick story about Mother Teresa. Uh, I didn't know this, but I, I, I heard um, 
that powerful businesswomen and businessmen and CEOs and CFOs would go and visit uh, her when she was in Calcutta uh, because they were so unfulfilled in their life. They, here, they, here these people were, they're the top of the game and successful, and they got all this mega money, but yet they felt empty. And so they'd go over there and visit with Mother Teresa to try to get some sage wisdom about maybe I'm missing something. And there's this one story that I heard about this powerful CEO or somebody that's meeting with her. And she looks up at him and she says, what is your job? You know, she's like five feet tall. Here's this high-powered CEO, CFO guy. And he starts to go into his job of what his role is and what he's responsible for and all the different things and projects he oversees. And she, she cuts him off and says, no, 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 no. What is your job? And he's <laughs> confused and is like, that is my job. And she says, that's not your job. Your job is to know how much you are loved by God and to love others with the overflow of that love. That's your job. And so I want to end by asking you the same question. What's your job? Do you know what your job even is? Do you know why you're breathing right now? The Bible's answer to that is to say your top priority, your highest calling, the main business of your life is to know that you are loved by God in Jesus and to love others with the overflow of that love. That's why we exist. That's why we're here. Well, consider that an invitation for you this morning. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, I do pray that you would give us eyes to see the wonder of your love. Father, if we are honest, we don't know what it is. We don't know how to experience it. We don't know how to receive it. We don't even know how to make sense of it. And yet you display it for us so vividly in the gospel. Would you give us uh, soft hearts, a, a, willing, a willing receptivity to receive and to drink in and throw ourselves into the ocean of this love that is available for us, and so transform us, so, so renew us that we might even say that the old is gone and the new is here. Work in us and help us to be the very people that you have created and designed us to be. Only your spirit can do this. Only, only you can work this deep, uh, transforming work in us. We cannot generate it by our own willpower. Please do it. Do it in me and do it in these folks here. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name.